Hey everybody, Adam Stott here. Thanks for checking out my podcast, Business Grow Secrets. You're absolutely in the right place. This podcast is going to reveal to you all of the secrets that you've been looking to discover that are going to allow you to cure your cash flow problems, attain more clients, bring in more leads for your business, and create systems and processes that give you the growth that you want. You are going to discover the business growth secrets you have been looking for that I've used to sell over £50 million worth of products and services on social media and help clients everywhere to grow their businesses on the mark. So let's get started on the Business Growth Secrets podcast. Awesome. Right? That sounds yeah. awesome. So how do you choose how to get involved with these companies? I mean, you know, that you know, certainly interesting. How do you choose I mean, before I say that, there's yeah. you create so there's a couple of things yeah. there's strength and vulnerability, absolutely. So we've got a good question here we'll come back to yeah. uh, in a mission in a minute. I mean, yeah. that's an awesome concept. How do you decide to get involved with that business, right? Yeah. How does that come across your desk? And what do you do for that business? So, like, yeah. how does uh, Daniel uh, get involved with that and dive into it? And, and what do you do with that kind of business? How does that yeah. work? So there is no, there's no application to become a part of what we refer to as the Unreasonable Fellowship. We handpick and we privately invite the companies. If you are interested, though, we have a contact form, just reasonablegroup.com. Uh, you can click connect and you can reach out to us there. there right? okay. yep. Yep. But you know, for us, the reason we don't have an application process is we've learned that the best entrepreneurs in the world, they don't apply for things. Why? Because they're so focused. The reason they're so effective is their heads down really on kind of what's right in front of them. And so we handpick and then we privately invite entrepreneurs into the fellowship and we support them for life. Uh, I mean, our, our promises will give you an unfair advantage into perpetuity. You know, so long as you're running a company that's trying to solve a societal and environmental challenge. That's kind of our key. So the fundamentals are societal or environmental challenge yeah, yeah. or problem. Yep. And they solve that in a, in a different way. So if yeah. anybody knows a company that feels like they're doing that, then certainly go on there and, and let Daniel totally. know, imagine, because that'd be awesome. Yeah. 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 People do it. And, you know, we meet, yeah. I have clients all the time that focus in on, and do you know what? Some of the people with these ideas, and I mean, like one of the things that we do is we run, or pre-COVID, we would run free events yep. and we all over the country and we'd run a free event and I would meet anywhere from 100 to 350 entrepreneurs in a, at once and we would talk to those people and the people had the wackiest ideas so that we, was me? we'd meet like 10 people with like wacky ideas yeah um that were pretty cool but wacky and they are looking for connections that yeah. and usually it was of environmental or societal yep. challenges there will be people out there so if you know somebody like that then certainly a direct and source Daniel, because it sounds like he's making a real difference there. So you select yeah. them on that basis, yeah. and then when you select them, or what they, oh, yeah, <laughs> what happens? Right? Come on, what's, what's the next thing? The only thing I'll add is just the solutions we select. They're oh, yeah, only for-profit companies, kind of at a growth stage and development, and their impacts baked into the DNA of their profit model. So the more money they make, the more impact they have in the world. And then we look for hyperscalability, right? So uh, they might have you know regional relevance where they proved the concept, but yeah. we want to work with entrepreneurs who have global ambition to solve a problem full stop. And so 
that kind of gets to scale. So, so what do we actually do when we find the entrepreneurs? Uh, you know, point of induction into the fellowship is, is an initial program. Pre-COVID, that was in essence 12 days. We'd get together in person, you know, highly immersive experience with about, about 12 to 15 entrepreneurs. Throughout that uh, you know, nearly two-week experience, we'll bring in about 60 or so of our mentors. They're from all around the world. And then uh, we'll have a private investor gathering as well as part of that. And you know, our goal in, the, in this program, this is what most of the world thinks we do for the entrepreneurs are these immersive gatherings. We want to make that the most productive you know, two weeks that you've had in your entrepreneurial life. Most productive for your company, but also most productive for you as an individual in terms of like wellness and leadership style and creating culture and hiring teams and so on. And you know, typically a, a reasonable fellow who walks out of that program will have a little bit over a hundred commitments. And commitments can be, hey, I want to you know, help with your uh, cross-continental supply chain challenges, you know, bringing solar from India into East Africa, or it could be, yeah, I, I want to license your technology and put it into you know, our supply chains, or it could be, I want to invest, or it could be, I'd love to be on your board. But they'll have about a hundred commitments coming out of that program. But the truth is, is these programs, although they're really intense or intensive, uh, that's the start of our relationship. So we treat them as the point of induction into the fellowship. And what that looks like ongoing, right? If it, you know, we, we say we support you into perpetuity, there's a couple things. Um, so you'll get matched up with typically, let's say, five to eight other CEOs in the Unreasonable Fellowship, and they'll come together in what we refer to as a grove. So once a month, they'll drop in with each other, small group, and they'll drop in with each other anywhere between two to four hours. Um, and in that grove, you know, what's shared there is not shared anywhere else. So this is, um, we, we refer to it as absolute confidentiality, which means Nobody, no one ever uh, shares what's discussed. That creates, right? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but it like yeah. creates the right environment where you can say, "Hey, it could be any type of issue, right?" Like I'm, uh, yeah, I'm worried about my health. I'm so stressed out that I went into cardiac arrest last year, and I think it's going to happen again. And I don't know how to balance, you know, the work I have in front of me with my stress, or it could be my marriage is struggling. I don't know how to like balance those two things. Or it could be like, hey, my board of directors is totally dysfunctional. <laughs> like, how do you solve for this? Could be anything. What they're doing though in these groves is every month they're coming to each other with their biggest challenges in life, in work, and and family. And this is it's modeled after a group called YPO. We've taken a you know a lot of their methodologies in terms of CEO peer-to-peer coaching. So every month you'd get together with that group. You know, beyond that, anytime you're raising capital, our team will immediately jump on and you know, we, we work with over a thousand sources of capital. So we'll immediately connect our entrepreneurs into those sources of capital. And that's that I mentioned earlier, it's you know foundation, sovereign wealth funds, private equity groups, governments, um, individuals, whatever you know, it might be. One thing I'd love to do for the audience because yeah. there's you know somebody that has massive experience in raising capital. And of course, there is the relationship capital aspects and there is your relationships. Is there any any tips that you could give, maybe just a couple of tips? Yeah. Out to the audience? <laughs> well, first of all, could we talk about people's attitude towards raising capital? Like, totally. you know, as a small, yeah. a small business, like one of the things that I really understand the principles and certainly my first business, you know, even by the age of, you know, what, like 27, I've raised like 9 million for my yeah. own business and capital. Yeah. And a lot of people don't have the almost like sometimes the guts to go and say, right, I want to back myself, I want to raise yeah. the capital. And, and they misunderstand the importance of it. So what, what do you think about people's attitude towards raising capital? Yeah. 
investors. Like, what should a small entrepreneur do? Should they raise capital, or should they should they grow their business organically? What would your perspective be on that? Two things. It, it depends, right? Obviously, if you're a healthcare biotech company, you have to raise capital because you're not going to make revenue anytime soon. But different companies can. I think the first thing I always say is the best capital is revenue. If you yeah. can get your product out into market and start selling it, you know, there's, and I think that in the entrepreneurial world, we get caught up in financing a lot of times, right? So, you know, they raise 50 million and so on, and there's a little bit of FOMO and, and whatever that might be, but hands down, the best capital is revenue. It's better than philanthropic, it's better than anything. It means that your product and service is out there in the market and you're going to get feedback to improve it. Well, I'm actually from somebody right. that essentially is somebody that works in that world for you to say that. I think that's awesome. Because yeah. it's to people listening that, you know, there is no excuse for not taking action, is there, right? Go yeah. and make it happen, right? Yeah. Ride your bike, as, as Daniel's told you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Get on it. You might fall over, right? I mean, I, th- I think when you're looking at raising investment, right, there's a couple tiers, but uh, typically the first type of folks you would raise capital from you know, it's known as the three Fs, it's like friends, families, and fools. Um, it's the honest truth. And, and I think what, what it's getting at is your first capital is relational to the extreme because you don't have a product yet. You probably don't even have a prototype yet if, you know, that's where you're at in that stage of development. And so you are raising from people who specifically believe believe in you. You know, this gets, yes, absolutely to like access of relationships and, you know, how much privilege does somebody have in their friends or families or, you know, the folks they can talk to. But that gets to your point of just getting yourself out there in a really big way at that early stage. But no, they're going to bet on you. I say once you start raising more traditional capital, whether it's angel investors or venture, what oftentimes happens is the people who run the due diligence are the investors on the entrepreneur. And they'll run heavy due diligence. And I think entrepreneurs forget to do the same with their investors. I would say if you're raising capital from anybody, look at their portfolio of entrepreneurs and reach out directly to those companies. Uh, you can reach out to the contact form. You know, Typically, if you say, hey, I'm looking at raising from X fund and I know they financed you, can we talk about it? Typically, they're going to say yes. And when you get on that phone, you're going to hear like, Either like they're a fantastic investor, you know, they've been a partner to us and an ally, or it's been horrendous, like, you know, like, or whatever yeah. that is. But I think that um, some people are so desperate at that stage with capital, they'll just take anyone. And yeah, that is a problem, isn't it? You know, well, it can be really dangerous because what you want to, you like, one, you want to do like that background check. And, and also, you know, you can just ask the fund. If you say, hey, I would like to talk to, you know, these six investments that I know are in your portfolio. Can you connect me? If they say no, that's a big <laughs> flag in that sense, right? So part of it is just do your homework. Think about the long term. Yes, you might want that money now, but it can ruin your business and it can make your life horrible if you get the wrong type of investor. But then the other part is know what what the pressure is on the investor. What are their expectations, right? And I, and I think this takes a little bit of understanding of just how like venture capital like typically works um, for folks by, you know, the, the partners in a venture capital fund, they're raising money from other people. And those other people have an expectation on the timeline for return, right? Yeah. And so if a fund is normally 10 years in length, you want to sit down with the investor and say, okay, how many years into the fund are you right now? And how quickly do you need, you know, a financial exit? from the investment in, into, into my company. Because you want to really make certain that those, those are lined up with your expectations, right? If you sit with a fund who's maybe four years into their life of their current fund, they're going to need you to turn around really quickly and you may not be able to. Uh, but so part of it's that. And then part of it's knowing 
yeah, just what's their intention with the capital? Or do you feel values aligned with that investor? Because you are getting married to them. And it is, it's a reasonable analogy. And that's am, right? that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I find that from an investor's perspective, when an entrepreneur does come to an investor and says, hey, uh, yeah, I'm really interested to work with you, of course. Um, but I, I do have a number of questions that I would love to get grounded in to ensure we're aligned, right? Can you connect me to these references? Can you tell me about your timeline? Where are you at in your allocation pool? What do you typically look for? That is a huge sign of strength. If you're an investor looking at an entrepreneur, you're saying, okay, wow, they're taking this seriously, just as seriously as I hope they're taking you know, their broader work. Um, and so it's not, it's not something to be shy about. But yeah. I think that the power dynamics feel really one way. But if you do come in and ask the right questions, I find that like then you can kind of move to the same side of the table in some ways. Awesome. Great, great advice there without a shadow of a doubt. So one of the investments that's been recently made is into air protein, yeah. which uh, I was certainly interested in. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah. I was exercising this morning. I badly injured my back so much. Would ah. air protein, like, Sorry, Adam. I can't walk. <laughs> Would air protein, would it have repaired me? <laughs> well, tell me a bit about it. It wouldn't have, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sorry to hear that. It's the worst. Honestly, yeah. So air protein, that's the first investment that we placed as part of a new initiative we call the Unreasonable Collective. And uh, the Unreasonable Collective, which I know we'll talk about, we're trying to give opportunity to individual investors um, to be able to invest into the best companies, in essence, almost primed companies for investment across the Unreasonable Fellowship. And you know, the, these companies are raising anywhere between, let's say, 20 and $100 million in their financing rounds. And so individuals who aren't billionaires, you know, normally cannot get into these companies. And we want to change the demographics of that and allow it so that, you know, you or I could be able to invest. So Air Protein was the first company that we syndicated an opportunity into. Um, it's led by an amazing entrepreneur. Her name's uh, Dr. Lisa Dyson. Um, she's based out of California. Not far too many, but a lot more kind of PhDs than most people should have, right? Uh, in that sense. And she's, she's brilliant. She's taken a technology out of NASA where you know, NASA was looking at if we're going to travel to Mars, we're going to have astronauts living in a confined environment for about a year. You know, it was at least what they were looking at originally. They're going to be breathing out a lot of carbon dioxide and they're going to need sources of food. So how can we deal with that? And so they, they um, basically bioengineered bacteria or microbes is a way to think of it that can eat carbon dioxide in the air and convert it into protein. So air protein, they've commercialized that technology out of NASA. They're literally making chicken out of carbon dioxide. So without the need to raise or, or kill animals. And, you know, I mean, the crazy stat on that, right, is humans, we consume 70 billion animals a year. It is like a shocking number, right? And if you look at the impact on the environment, depends who you talk to, but upwards of about 30% of climate change is based on the way that we produce protein around the world. So this is literally taking carbon dioxide and converting it into new forms of protein like chicken. You can check it out. It's airprotein.com. Nice. You know, we're, we're privileged to be uh, a part of that. I am, and I, the, the round that we invested into, we actually got a discounted rate, but it was led by Google Ventures and by our partners at Barclays. And so what's so cool is, you know, just taking it close to home. Like my parents are part of the Unreasonable Collective just as individuals. And so, you know, they were able to invest into that deal that normally no individual would, would really have access to. Awesome. So that, that's what the Unreasonable Collective is. Yeah. It's about bringing ordinary people the opportunity to invest in pretty much extraordinary companies. Is that, yeah. is that what yeah. it's 
that's a good frame. It's I'm uh, way better than you, Daniel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you said it way better. Yeah, I would say it's a uh, you know the word community. This it's community driven investment um, is really what it is. And where it comes from, my teammate Pratiba, she runs our investment team, and she was passing all of these investment opportunities to you know very large institutional funds like BlackRock or Blackstone or kind of so on and so forth. Um, these are like multi-billion dollar investment funds. And Pratiba is an individual angel investor. And she was realizing, she's like, I'm passing the best deals I've ever seen, the most impactful deals I've ever seen to these really large institutions. She's like, why can't people like me invest? Right. And in Pratiba's case, people like her, you know, she's a working mom. She's not a billionaire. She's you know, born in India. She's not from the US. She's working in New York now. She's a woman of color. Right. I mean, all of these things. And she was realizing that People like her did not have the ability to participate into companies like the ones of the caliber that we have uh, in our fellowship. And so she's like, well, I want to change that. Uh, and so she came to me with this idea for the collective. And at first I said, Pratiba, we have so much going on. Like, I don't, I don't know. She's like, well, let me, you know, just let me like put it down on paper. And let's talk about it. She put it down on paper. I looked at it. I said, well, this is, this is genius. This is one remarkably important kind of to change the demographics of who has the ability to finance and who also gets financing. But uh, also, this is just, it's, it's a profound business case for the individual investor you know, to be able to participate in, in these really compelling companies. Um, so that's just a reasonablecollective.com. We really just launched it. And we have just over 50 founding members um, since the start of this year. And, and we work with funders all around the world. You know, Sir Stephen O'Brien, he's knighted out of the UK, amazing entrepreneur, a member of parliament for a while out there from him to... Uh, you know, we have princes and princesses and we have, uh, you know, the CTO of uh, Accenture, Paul Doherty, you know, one of the largest companies in the world, it's over 500,000 employees. He sees technology trends, you know, as well as anybody. And, and then like my parents are a part of it. And so like we're trying to you know, give everyday people the ability to put their money into things that really matter. And we believe, you know, hopefully produce outsized financial returns as well. Awesome. Sounds brilliant. I've got to ask you, we're going to ask you the COVID question. Yeah, yeah, I saw a couple in there. After this, we're going to jump in some of the questions that people had. And if you've got a question today, for I know we've got some questions in already, which we're going to come back to in just a moment. But if you've been watching all the way through, well done so far. We're going to come up to those questions in a moment. If you haven't had a chance to ask a question, you want to say hello to Daniel and ask him a question, you want to ask him anything at all, I'm sure he's a top man. He's going to be really happy. It could be anything, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Right, no problem. Pop it in the comments and let know. Even if it's about branding, about media, As I said, Daniel's been featured as one of the 50 world top leaders in Fortune magazine. Uh, you've worked with some amazing people, actually, Daniel. We haven't mentioned that. Definitely one of the people you've actually worked with and some big-time celebrities as well that you've been involved with, which is awesome. First of all, like, how has uh, COVID impacted the work that you've been doing this year with Unreasonable Group? What's changed? You know, That'd be awesome to hear. You know, because at yeah. the end of the day, a good entrepreneur finds a way, don't they? Um, yeah. And if there's a lot of people watching that might be looking to find their way, what yeah. are some of the things you might have done differently or some of the differences? How's that affected you? A lot of things. Great question. Yeah, COVID's affected every industry, every sector, every geography, and some in good ways and some in really kind of tragic ways. Yeah, I would say for our fellows um, across the board, they're doing better actually in the COVID environment because they're looking at future of healthcare, education, food access, and all of that now has been accelerated. Like the shift of disruption has been accelerated towards more sustainable technologies. But for us as a team, when uh, when we realized that COVID was really serious, you know, we were supposed to run a program just outside of London, I think early March. And we called it off the day before. 
and we had this kind of, you know, like, oh shit moment, we realized that, you know, our primary business model is, is partnerships with these multinationals and governments. And, you know, they contract us to give them, I would say like relational access to the CEOs we support. And part of that is through these in-person gatherings that we run all around the world. And so when COVID came, came into a uh, kind of full thrust, uh, we were a little nervous because we were like, okay, we, we run multi-week international sleepovers. <laughs> and that's just a simple way of putting it. This is not going to go well. And uh, so we went into a uh, scenario planning. I think what I could have done better as an entrepreneur, I'd actually never done a kind of emergency scenario planning session. And we, we did that internally within our company. And if I do it again, I'd bring in an expert, honestly. Like there are some things that it's just really helpful to be guided through because I think we fumbled a little bit. I fumbled a little bit on that. And we had our worst case scenario, our likely case scenario, and our best case. And right where we actually ended up though, was in our best case scenario. So we got lucky. And this gets back to the power of quality relationships. You know, all of our partners who could have, because of COVID, pulled out of all of our contracts. Not one did. And in fact, across the board, they invested more into the partnerships. I, and I think that's a testament to the quality of relationships that we were lucky enough to be able to form with them and to the importance of this work, you know, especially during COVID. But for us, this was a hard pivot because we went from basically doing almost all of the value creation that we were giving to the Reasonable Fellows was in person in different ways throughout the year. And then we had to move all of that virtually. What we've seen is that a lot of what we do is actually more effective virtually because you can curate better, right? Well, like I mentioned, we have a you know, network of over 600 mentors. When we run an in-person program, we really can't bring more than 50 or 60 together. And so you're only getting a subset. Right. When it's virtual, let's say you want to look at, you know, converting carbon dioxide into plastic because you could sit, you know, IKEA can make tables out of carbon dioxide. Right. So you might want to figure out how to get into IKEA supply chain. Well, now we can run what we call a brain trust and we can find 12 of our mentors anywhere in the world who are specialists, you know, around that question. And some of them work at IKEA and we can run that session for you. You know, they can all be in their living rooms. And so we've seen, right, the remarkable benefit there. You have cost, you can do it, yeah. yeah. I think the, the downsides to virtual, and I don't know if you've seen this, Adam, as well, but I went into it thinking this was gonna be easier. It's actually much harder. It's much easier to run an event in person uh, and a gathering in person because you can have, you know, a little bit more white space. Like people a little bit more generous with it. And when it's virtual, like we need to, or like our kind of TikToks, right? How we facilitate our sessions. We have it down to the minute. And it's literally of like minute two, do this, minute four, do this, minute six, do this. Because, you know, get to creative kind of breakthrough solutions. I think you need structure, but that much more so in a virtual environment. So I'd say it's, it's a lot harder for us uh, to do what we do virtually, even in some ways it's more effective. I think the downside to it is just the personal touch. In our programs, the most important table is not a boardroom table. It's, it's a dinner table. And that's where we drop in as people. And you really build trust and relationships when you drop in and you talk about family or aspirations or mistakes, you know, whatever that might be. And so I, I'm missing that in a big way. Those side conversations don't tend to happen yes. too much. I think that's what you're, you're saying. Those, those little relationship builders are not yeah. quite there virtually as they would be in person. Yeah. Yeah. You need that free space, like to, to like accelerate serendipity. Like you need to leave some room for serendipitous yeah. occurrences. And in a virtual world, you're just so structured that I, you know, that's a little harder. But you know, we'll get through it, right? We'll we'll all you know get vaccinated. And get I do feel that there is a few so, so for events and speaking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that 
there's things that COVID has, uh, will make us do differently. Moving oh, completely. Forward. Yeah. You know, but then there's stuff that we want to bring back, uh, you know, that we, we, we you know, yeah. never want to live without. Yeah, which is exactly. But bringing two worlds together and, totally and them in the right way, I think, is really useful. Like, I mean, you're in Colorado. I'm in Essex. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, I'm sure it's probably probably a bit nicer over in Colorado, especially as it's pitch black outside where I am and it's nice and bright where you are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's cold, but it's cold. No, it's cold. <laughs> you are right, though, Adam. I mean, the uh, the gift of the experience is a lot of what we're doing virtually will keep. And, and in the end, we'll have a hybrid approach. The things you'll do in person are the things you can only do in person. And that's also a better use of people's time, right? Because when we come together in person, we're away from our families, you know, or whatever that might be. And yeah. So, yeah, I think it coming out of it, everything we do is going to be strong. And I think that's true of a lot of companies, but it's been hard. It's hard to pivot that quickly. And the toughest thing for us has been, you know, managing kind of the energy and the kind of the culture within the team amongst so much uncertainty. And I think that's, you know, pretty common story right now amongst entrepreneurs and CEOs, but it doesn't mean it's easy. <laughs> it doesn't make it easier because other people are struggling too. It's just been kind of tough there. Absolutely. I love what you said that you did when you did your crisis session. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've, I've said for years, like if, you, if people are watching now, I'm sure they've been watching all the way through that are our clients. And if they've worked with me, that I've always talked to them about decision-making. And yeah. when I talk about decision-making, I say, you really want to look at what is the very worst thing that can happen. What's the yeah. very best thing that can happen? And what is the most likely thing that can happen? And if you look at those three structures, you're yeah. going to have a much, you're going to be able to have a better idea of the scenarios that play out. And it makes them so much easier. And it, and it just seems that the more successful people you speak to, and I've only recently bought this interview series back many years ago. I did something called The Big Business Show, and I interviewed with really big names and did some cool, really cool stuff. And I did that all over the world in person as well. But recently, where I've been doing these interviews and talking to really successful people like yourself, the trends are, you know, it's like people, if you're trying to decode success, right, you can see the habits, you know, yeah. and I think if you learn the habits, the, you know, the habits and the thinking, this is really, really, really good, a good shortcut for a lot of people. Yep. So we've got a couple of questions. This one's come in. We'll do these quick fire. Yeah. Um, we've, we've been on plenty of time already. You've been awesome so far. But hi, what are your thoughts on what could be the next big thing in marketing? And I guess yeah. with you know, working with so many different companies and working yeah. different worlds, what, what's your opinion on this? I'll be really interested to hear myself as I love marketing. Yeah, I think that um, great marketing is going to move into the category of earned media versus paid for. I think that so many of the outlets are struggling with their financial models. But at the end of the day, the brands that people are going to really resonate with are the ones who are just doing phenomenally important work in the world and thereby earning the media. Like an, an example being Tesla. Tesla fired their PR department. Right? Um, why? Because they're getting coverage all the time because they're just doing very important work for the world and doing it in a bold way. So in essence, they're earning it. And it's you know our conversation we have with with our partners all the time. It's like, hey, just because we launch a new initiative, that doesn't mean that anybody's going to write about it. They're going to write about the stories of actual change that come out of it because that's earned, right? And so I think that that's where I would put my emphasis on is do things that are worth talking about and the world will talk about them. I am more so than in the past. It's been easier to get out there with, I guess, less noteworthy stories. But now, if, if it's not really noteworthy, you have to pay for it. And so I would just say, do things that matter more, that resonate more, that are oh, uh, that, more meaningful. That links and ties to pretty much this interview, which is how yeah. you 
inside the company, right? Which yes. is really interesting. Uh, good one from Brooke here. Brooke's one of our clients, great guy. We've kind of covered this, but yeah, a little bit. footnote on this. How have you adapted your business model and networking over the year? Do you want to give a quick fire one on that? Just to, yeah. Yeah, over the last year, business model has stayed the same. We got lucky with that. Our partners kind of stuck with us. Um, we did evolve it with launching the collective, this new investment product. But uh, networking has changed uh, dramatically. And I think um, what we've seen, you know, as I said, is um, we've been able to curate a lot better virtually. We've had to get a lot more discipline with how we host uh, virtual sessions and really structure them so that every minute matters. We realize that when it's virtual, for people to stay engaged, they need to be a part of the conversation. So, you know, we don't like master classes running those virtually. They tend not to work nearly as well as, okay, let's have a talk and then let's break people out into separate rooms where they can talk amongst each other, share those learnings and come back to the group and so on. So we've had to change methodology to ensure more engagement virtually, but we have seen that it's actually more effective in terms of productivity for our companies because we can curate better. The only other thing I'd say is, you know, this last year we were able to, you know, line up with some like amazing celebrities, you know, whether that's kind of Pitbull or, you know, that's a uh, former president of Liberia, Nobel Peace Prize winner, Madam Sirleaf, or, um, you know, presidential candidates or whatever that might be. And part of it has been when it's virtual, it's a much easier ask. It's like, hey, will you be a part of the conversation for an hour? That's way easier, right? Then let's fly you out to this place. It's incredible. Yeah. The people you can get a hold of is you attempt to do it. Right, it's just that people don't, you know. It's it's, in, it's incredible, you know, and uh, hence, you know, you're on tonight, and we've got amazing people lined up because yeah. the ask is a very different ask. It's an easier ask, right? Yeah, like I, yeah. I fly here and come and talk to a group of people. That's like, yeah. hang on, you know, is is this worth what? Is it worth traveling time? Is it worth being away from my family? It's like, hey, Daniel, you're in your living room. Can you come and you know tell us? <laughs> come hang out for a little bit. Uh, of course, yeah. Adam. Adam, yeah. I'd fly out to hang out with you once, but yes. Uh, awesome. Okay. Brooks also asked, are you working with any AI companies? I mean, just that as far as you. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a, a, a huge amount. I had, uh, just a good example. If you look up Skyhive, they're a great example. It's an AI platform for the kind of future of job training, job placement. But uh, I would say that probably a third of our companies, so almost 100 companies, are deeply steeped in artificial intelligence and machine learning and deep learning just as part of how they they operate in today's market. And probably maybe 15 to 20 are specifically AI companies. So yes, a lot of that. And, and part of that is because when you, when you look at a lot of these global challenges, you need to be able to make sense of big data is a huge hindrance towards moving the needle in the right direction. And so um, a lot. Awesome, awesome. We answered this one, pandemic changes. So we've, we've done that one on pre-pandemic. We've got one. How would you define a, a societal change? Uh, <laughs> question, actually. You know, how we used to define it is with an acronym. We just said, look, what we're really referring to are BFPs, which just stands for big fucking problems. Um, it's the best way we could put it. But, you know, I, I would say part of it is slightly intuitive, right? So, yeah, for us, healthcare, food, water, renewable energy access, I, I would say renewable transportation, as well, I would look directly at future of learning. Uh, that's from childhood education up through you know, what it's going to look like to retrain workforces around the world as the digital era kind of kicks into gear. But what we're trying to see is um, societal impact for at least the companies we work with. You know, we ask ourselves the question, like, are they positioned to impact the lives of tens of millions of people if this succeeds in a very meaningful way where their intended consequences 
the benefit of them far outweigh their unintended consequences, right? Uh, because even if you, you know, look at a company like D-Light, that's a company in the Reasonable Fellowship, they've brought solar to over 100 million people who formerly didn't have electricity. It's a, it's a crazy statistic. There are more people today who don't have electricity than when Thomas Edison turned on the light bulb because of population growth. Uh, it's about 1.3 billion people, right, yeah. still don't. Yeah, it's a BFP, right? And so, so when you look at that, right, there's an unintended consequence, which is you're producing a lot of solar panels and batteries, and there's some waste with that. Does the intended consequence far outweigh the benefit of the detriment of the un- Yes, but without question, you're bringing electricity to uh, you know, 100 million people. You're helping them come out of poverty. Uh, you're saving them from a lot of health concerns. You're allowing you know, girls to be able to study at night and so on and so forth. But we will look at that. So I would say it varies you know, sector to sector, but we're looking for global aspirations of scale, at least tens of millions of people per company. And we want to ensure that they started the company to move the needle on that problem. Not that I, that it was an opportunity they kind of stumbled upon. Um, and at the end of the day, like we, we would say, look, profit can be a great thing. It can be a bad thing. It can be a great thing. Profiteering is not the place that we play. We want to work with entrepreneurs who started their company because they wanted to solve the problem and they saw profit as the tool. Nice. Okay, lovely job. Well, it's made for an amazing interview. Fascinating. Um, Fun hanging with you, Adam. But I want to ask you questions. (laughs) (laughs) Another time we do that. We've got to do that. Yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. But I think it's been fascinating. You know, really, really enjoyed it. But, you know, it's been a fascinating interview. It's been awesome. Thank you very much. People can get in touch with you at the unreasonablegroup.com. Yep. If you want to look at the Unreasonable Collective, what's the domain for that? Unreasonablecollective.com. Unreasonablecollective.com. You know, Dan's been, you know, fascinating. If you have just caught this on the replay or you're just tuning in now, make sure you go back and watch all the way to the beginning because I think there's a lot of lessons in here that uh, are really going to make a difference to you in many, many ways. I think it's been fascinating. So, you know, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate that. Daniel, you've been a superstar and it's been brilliant to spend tonight with you, my man. All right. Hey, everybody. Adam here. And I hope you loved today's episode. Hope you thought it was fabulous. And if you did, I'd like to ask you a small favor. Could you jump over and go and give the podcast a review? Of course, I'll be super grateful if that is a five-star review. We're putting our all into this podcast for you, delivering you the content, giving you the secrets. And if you've enjoyed it, please go and give us a review and talk about what your favorite episode is, perhaps. Every single month, I select someone from that review list to come to one of my exclusive academy days and have lunch with me on the day, meeting hundreds of my clients. So if you want that to be you, then you're going to be in with a shout if you go and give us a review on iTunes. Please, of course, do remember to subscribe so you can get all the up-to-date episodes. Peace and love, and I'll see you very, very soon. Thank you.